I'm joined here with Eric Blatt. He advises emerging companies as to intellectual property and strategic transactions. An accomplished litigator and a former patent examiner at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Eric speaks and publishes frequently on intellectual property and other issues relating to things like SBIRs, OTAs, and other really long acronyms. So thrilled to have you with us today, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. So first up, what was your path to becoming an intellectual property attorney and why in the defense space? <clears throat> so those are really two different stories. My path into the world of intellectual property, it actually started when I was in college. My father is a neurosurgeon back in Kansas City, and he and I filed a patent application together. I was studying biomedical engineering at Duke University, and he and I filed a patent application together on a spinal surgery technique. And so that brought me into the world of intellectual property. And my first job out of college, I was a patent examiner. And then that eventually led to going to law school and joining the world of patent portfolio development and patent litigation. And then on the, the defense side, a friend of mine who's no longer at the SBA, but he was at the SBA in the SBIR program office. He knew that I was had worked at the patent office and that I was doing patent litigation at a firm in DC. And he ran the SBI program office, which does a number of things. Um, two of the one of those things is it hosts conferences for SBI awardees twice a year. And so he said, Hey Eric, we run these conferences twice a year. We bring all sorts of founders into the program. We want to teach them how to run their companies more effectively. One of the things we want to teach them about is intellectual property and patents. You worked at the patent office, you do patent litigation. Why don't you come sit on a panel? I said, sure, I'll give this a try. And I guess I did okay because they kept inviting me back. And then after a while, a whole bunch of companies had hired me and I realized that this is an incredibly interesting world. The SBIR program, obviously, it, it touches 11 agencies. Department of Defense is by far the largest awarding agency under the program. And so a lot of my clients wound up in the defense contracting world, and particularly in this SBIR emerging technology world. And they have all kinds of interesting legal questions that a lot of attorneys, particularly patent attorneys and IP attorneys, aren't touching on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it just became a very interesting world. And I said, you know what? I can make a career out of this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Let's become an expert on these topics. And one thing I've always heard is that people who practice IP-related issues, it's attorneys are a guild. They're a secret club, and they have their own secret ways in which they do things, or not really secret per se, but just that it's a guild. And then intellectual property is a separate guild. And what makes up somebody who is better performing in that, that second intellectual property guild? Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's so many different skill sets and there's actually so many subspecialties within the world of intellectual property. So there are patent attorneys, but even if you want to break down patent attorneys, there's patent litigators, there's patent prosecutors. Patent prosecution is the drafting of patent applications and the arguing with the patent examiners. Then you can do subcategories within that and have the guys who are doing tech and software and the guys who are doing, or the gals who are doing the biotech and the, me and the medical stuff. Generally, what I think makes an attorney effective is an understanding of the client's objectives and an ability to listen to those objectives, develop a strategy that effectuates those objectives and delivers results without running up a bill and is true to what the client actually wants to see. Within all of those, within all those domains, there's different ways to act on those. Um, with it, for example, within the patent prosecution world, the portfolio development. I think it's really important to understand your patent examiner and figure out 
what types of arguments are going to be responsive to your audience. For, or to take another example, in the transactional context, not only how do we build a document that's going to mitigate the client's risks, but what is going to be acceptable to the other side? And how can we get the deal closed in two rounds of back and forth rather than 10? Yeah. And when you think of how you stay current, because obviously you're thinking about the technology side, especially from a patent perspective, you have to describe these new and novel things. What's your secret or what's your technique for staying ahead or being current, keeping up with both the client's objectives, but also trying to understand the underlying basis for what they're developing? Yeah, so much of that, particularly on the defense side, is changing so quickly because the DODs, its priorities are changing. It's constantly rolling out new programs, re revisions to the FAR and the DFAR all the time. I try to I try to surround myself with a useful network. There's bar associations you can join. But I, what a lot of what I do is communicating not only with other lawyers, but also communicating with other professionals in the space. There's all sorts of consultants that you can learn from. If you talk to a bunch of companies, there's a lot of lawyers who have a handful of very large clients. And that is great. They build deep relationships with those clients. But those clients are engaging the issues that those particular clients are engaging. I'm working with something like 70 or 80 companies right now. And so you just see an incredibly broad gamut of what types of issues those companies are facing. And then the ability to bring in obviously answer the questions that I can answer, but I'm very frank about this is something that I'm adjacent to, but I'm not really an expert on this. Let's bring in my buddy who used to work in this program office, and now he's an outside counsel. Let's bring him in for this. And there's just a lot of learning that you can do. So when companies are thinking about working with DOD or some of these types of contracts, they're familiar with keeping intellectual property through patents and trade secrets and data sets. What are some of the ways that those type of more traditional commercial techniques apply into a federal environment? What are the ones that don't really translate well? For commercial companies that are thinking about engaging with the Department of Defense, maybe they're doing it's the first contract or it's one of their first contracts. Um, sort of the mindset of a commercially oriented company is we have built this product with our own funding. We expect to control that, that product. So you, Department of Defense, you're going to be a customer. You can use the product. We want you to have success with that product. We want you to pay us. And at the end of the day, it's still our product, right? Maybe we'll sell units to you, but we still control the IP for that product. We still control the source code. That is a model that the Department of Defense is getting closer to accepting, but a lot of times it's not how the Department of Defense in these large programs is generally doing business. Generally, the Department of Defense has these big programs and it wants to really have pretty good access to and control over the IP outputs with some exceptions that can be navigated. But just from the commercial company's perspective, you have a different expectation coming in as a commercially oriented company than the government's expectations and then a lot of prime contractors. So you have to be willing to think about, okay, what levels of access am I willing to give up? And how do I present to the government my commercial business plan in a way that they're going to respect and that they're going to engage? And so what are some issues that, that people run into? As I talked about source code and access to source code, like how deep does that go in terms of that ownership or so source code is a licensure. And so if you're licensing software, but there's an ownership expectation, where are the translations like not working and what's the, where is it evolving? 
So almost always the company is going to regard its source code as secret sauce that it does not want other companies to be able to access. And ideally, that it doesn't even want to deliver to the federal government. So if the company takes an early stage contract like an SBIR, a lot of times those are contracts that the Department of Defense just wants to see the tech, evaluate the tech, receive your report, and they're willing to pay you to do that work. A lot of times the companies will sometimes put in the deliverables that they're going to deliver the source code or deliver the product because that's an expectation that the companies bring to the table. But a lot of times it's actually not necessary. The government isn't expecting that. So if you just, in your deliverables under one of these early stage contracts, you just say, I'm going to deliver access to this product. You're not going to get the product itself. You're going to get access. A lot of times the government is just perfectly fine with that on these early stage contracts. As you get further along, the government is going to get more invested in the product and it may want more deliveries, but at a high level, there are, depending on the company's leverage, uh, the company may be, will, may be able to pull back or refuse some of those requests, say, yes, I'm willing to give you this level of access. I can deliver my code, but I'm going to deliver it in compiled form, and it's going to be restricted in this way so that it can't be shared with other companies. There are things you can do with that. A lot of times the government is willing to accept those. It's just you have to think about sort of what those issues are. And you have to be transparent with your customer and talk through those issues so that the government understands what the pressure points are and why it's important for you to maintain to control this company so that your company can remain competitive and keep up with the commercial marketplace. Do you see a big difference between how the primes enact some of those requirements or some of those dynamics versus the federal government directly, or, or is it kind of more of a trickle down? It's relatively consistent. Uh, the, no, the primes operate quite differently than the federal government does in this respect. So if you're contracting directly with the federal government, that's going to be its own can of worms, depending on the nature of the contract, whether it's a development contract or production contract, a procurement contract, you're going to have different expectations from the government, but you can know what those expectations are and you can negotiate them. For the primes, um, so let's say the government directs one of its primes to award a subcontract to you. You are going to be pushed into the, the prime is going to say, congratulations, we want to award a subcontract to you. Here's how the money's going to work. Here's how the deliveries are going to work. And here's our terms and conditions, our standard terms and conditions. Then you look at the standard terms and conditions and they're 60 pages long. And they are not at all tailored to your particular scenario. They're just terms and conditions designed to cover everything under the sun. And of course, they're going to be maximally protective of the prime's interests and maximally risk avoidance from the perspective of the prime contractor. So you're going to see essentially under those standard terms and conditions, you're going to see essentially all the IP relevant to the project is going to be passing to the prime contractor if you accept those as is. And then you as the proposed subcontractor have decisions to make about which of those terms and conditions are acceptable and which of those you need to flip on their head. And if you decide that you do want to reject some of those terms, how do you do so in a way that is effective and is likely to make the prime contractor agree to your changes and still award the contract to you? It sounds like actually the federal government may be easier. It's uh, yes, in some ways. Yes, in some ways. The, uh, they're both, well, the federal government is a giant organization and it's hard to, a lot of folks, when you're dealing with the federal government, the person you're directly corresponding with doesn't necessarily have the authority 
to make these concessions. There can be a process of going in and getting approvals from the other folks. And then a lot of times the government just cannot accept certain terms. And so you have to figure out what the right and left bounds are. For the prime contractors, they're businesses. And so they do have a profit motive at the end of the day. And they're also large bureaucracies. They're not quite as large as the federal government, obviously, but they are large bureaucracies and you have sort of these checks and balances above the person you're directly dealing with. But in my experience, it has been, the federal government often has hard rules that you just can't change. The prime contractors, the rules are presented as though they're hard rules, but a lot of times they're less hard rules. So you may have more ability to negotiate than initially you expect. And then flipping it the other way, somebody who is more of a government-oriented perspective in terms of how they do contracting, how they think about intellectual property rights, if they go out and they're selling in the wider tech community, commercial market space, what are some techniques or how do you coach them on thinking around intellectual property in a way that's more, more commercially compatible? I would encourage folks in the government to be nimble, be iterative in their approach, get the tech in the door, get it evaluated, don't ask for everything up front, get some of these smaller dollar contracts, you can do a SIBR, you can do an OTA, you can do a CRADA, get the companies in the door, get them speaking with you. And then when you're ready to move on to that procurement contract where you actually want to use the technology, just be upfront about what your requirements are, communicate those to the companies. And the companies will let you know, yes, we can do this. No, we can't do this. And very often you can reach agreeable terms on the IP front. It's usually not an insurmountable barrier. It's just, if you try to have that conversation before there's demonstrated interest on the part of the government to actually procure the technology. And there's one of the hardest things to do with the federal government is when the you just can't talk to the customer where the company just can't talk to the customer. Those phone calls are incredibly helpful in terms of navigating those issues. So just communication, I think, is very valuable. Yeah. So switching gears over to the types of contracts that exist, and you've mentioned SIBRs, SBIRs, you've mentioned OTAs, CRADAs. Give a rundown. What are they best used for? And how should people be thinking about them? So from the company's perspective, the SIBRs are a great way to get hundreds of thousands of dollars to single digit millions usually, although some, some companies do manage to string together a series of SIBRs that goes up to 10 and $20 million total. Air Force has like the Stratify program, so that can be a bigger dollar contract. Those are pure research and development contracts smaller dollar, a million dollars to the extent it's a million dollars is a smaller dollar contract to build something. An OTA is a more flexible vehicle. It's conceptually similar to the SIBRs. It's just a different, different appropriation, different color money, and it's a potentially bigger dollars. So a lot of my clients are looking at the SIBR dollars and the OTA dollars as an equivalent. This is a way to find money to fund the technology development and build interest with the customer. The CRADAs, are another thing that I touch pretty often. The CRADAs are, from the company's perspective, are less attractive than both the SIBRs and the OTAs. The CRADAs are less attractive, number one, because the government can't pay you under a CRADA. Number two, sometimes the government expects to be paid under a CRADA for its portion of the effort. And then number three, it's interesting because a lot of people think about SIBRs and the OTAs as an IP risk. The SIBRs and the SIPRs actually uniformly have pretty fa company favorable IP terms. The OTAs are usually, the, the IP terms can be managed pretty effectively. 
The creators actually have terrible IP terms. Government very often expects pretty expansive rights in whatever you bring into that crater. And then the those terms are very often just you can't negotiate them. These This is a form. You hear from your customer that this is the form, and that's the form. There's nothing to be done about it. And you say, actually, this form is incorrect in these three ways. And they just say, this is the form. If you want to sign this crater with us, that's the form you have to sign. And so you just have to, you can manage that by kind of carefully crafting the scope of your credit, but I would say that is a useful vehicle if you just know that you need a quick and easy vehicle to have communications with your customer and get some information out from your customer so that you can go do another contract vehicle. But I usually encourage my clients to use credit sparingly. And, and how do people find out about these different types of contract vehicles? Were they advertised? How flexible are they? How changeable are any of them? I don't know where people find out about these contract vehicles. I, I don't know. How flexible are the contract vehicles? The sippers are cookie cutter contracts. The terms are the terms, they're car-based contracts. OTAs are pretty flexible. The CRADAs are, the terms and conditions for the CRADAs are usually quite inflexible, but the statements of work are essentially, you can write them essentially with no pushback from the government a lot of times or very little minimal pushback from the government. So the crate is, it's two documents. One is the terms and conditions. It's just going to be as is. And the statement of work is something you create around those terms and conditions. Yeah, I think creators are generally not as advertised. And hey, we want to do a crater. It's back and forth. Sibbers, I think, are advertised and program offices can come up with them. And there's different places that people can search for them. OTAs are in the middle. From what I know, uh, necessarily real advice. When uh, continuing on that topic, you've talked about the importance of communication and sometimes it can be challenging to ask specific questions. And sometimes people also ask questions that may not be appropriate of, how, can has this been awarded to me or how do I go get this in, in, in very direct ways? But what are some techniques that you've seen companies get substantial information about how they can be more competitive in these different contract vehicles, whether they're a right fit for a different contract vehicle than others? This question is probably outside my area of expertise. It's, this is more around business development and winning contracts. So the right time to talk to, you, to, to somebody like you is you've been awarded a contract and you're just trying to figure out how to get it to, to run it to ground? Yeah, I would say the you've been awarded a contract or you are negotiating a contract and you want to manage the strategy around that document. And what are the right ways to talk to a program office when you have those questions or you have logger jam about a different way that they want a contract to read versus you having a con different way a contract is going to read? So on the you can email. A lot of times people will email fairly assertively, and sometimes that works in the government space. Other times you can ask questions. If you usually with the earlier stage contracts, the government's just going to send those out and you want to figure out what you can, how you can get it to an acceptable place with minimal changes. And then if you need to have a conference call with the contracting officer or the contracting officer's representative, you can certainly have those calls as well. What's the two or three worst things that you've seen clients do that you you've either had to fix or you've been able to avoid by thinking ahead or being thoughtful about contract vehicles? From my perspective, there's all kinds of things that companies initially don't know about when they're moving into the defense space. So things like 
if you're a commercially oriented company, you are not going to be familiar at all with marketing requirements for deliverables on, on federal contracts. The Department of Defense, the general rule is if you deliver technology to the government and you don't apply the restrictive legends to it, the government is going to receive unlimited rights in those and can disclose them to your competitors, which can potentially be very detrimental to the companies. Other common things that come up. A lot of times the companies do not know that there's a different path for negotiating IP terms for commercially oriented software. So they will go in and their data rights assertions, they'll use the standard FAR-based data rights assertions when really they should be saying this is commercial software. And that actually gives you flexibility to essentially define your own IP terms for your software in much the same way you would in a commercial agreement. And then I guess there's a third category, which is we've been talking a lot about, okay, how do I move into the world of the Department of Defense? But there's also this element of, okay, how do I take my defense, the technology that I developed in part using federal funds, and then how do I take the benefit of that and spin that back to my commercial objectives? And so there, particularly so on the patent side, for example, a lot of companies will think about, okay, so I've got this product that I'm developing for the Department of Defense. Should I be patenting these features? If I am going to patent these features, how should I do? And what I would generally encourage companies to think about is the government and the commercial world really think of IP very differently. So in the commercial world, you're going to be thinking a lot about your license terms, and you're going to be thinking a lot about patents. It depends on the technology, but a lot of technologies are good fits for patents. In the defense world, the patent patents are somewhat important, but they're actually not especially important, not nearly as important as in the commercial world. What really matters a lot to the federal government is government data rights, the contract terms that you're agreeing to that are largely specified in the FAR. So generally, if companies are thinking about, do I want to patent my defense technology? The answer is maybe for the same reasons you would want to patent commercially oriented software, commercially oriented technology. But I would encourage you to think about when you're drafting those patents, just be, don't draft the patents to cover defense specific things in particular. I would encourage you to draft patents that are directed toward features that will apply primarily to the commercial market, but also happen to be in the defense-oriented product. So it's just that, that marrying of the strategy between what you're building in the defense world and understanding how that's going to be generalized to your, to, to your commercial product. Gotcha. Makes sense. And I guess last question, as more companies are building products that are based on data sets or algorithms, how are companies thinking about the most fruitful ways to both protect the asset that they have and be able to build on it, but also to share it in a context with the DOD or federal government? So a lot of times those data sets, when you're working with the federal government, uh, in my experience, a lot of times you actually, you don't have to disclose those data sets to the federal government. If you're, for example, if you're building a custom AI model, you will have built your own custom AI model that you will demonstrate with the data that you have available. But what you're really selling to the government is the fact that you can develop these effective AI models. And if they share some of their data, that you can improve and develop a custom AI model for the government. So in those cases, you may not have to deliver the underlying data to the government, because what the government's really interested in is what can you do with their data? And so I would just, I, 
as you're approaching this, I would just be thinking about, okay, how do we draw buckets around these various data modules and how do we separate them from one another so that we can list them in a row and understand the rights that attach to each of those separately. Awesome. Eric, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and guidance with us. And we have any questions on intellectual property issues, we know somebody to give a holler to. So thanks so much for joining awesome. us. Pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Securing Our Future podcast by New North Ventures, hosted by Jeremy Hitchcock. If you would like to learn more about how we are accelerating innovation through collaboration of the commercial and national security sectors, please subscribe to our newsletter at securingourfuture.us.